The following content contains adult subject matter, including descriptions of intimate partner violence and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence in any form, help is available. The National Domestic Violence Hotline provides free, confidential support 24-7. Call 1-800-799-SAFE or visit thehotline.org. It's December 18th, 2005, the last Sunday before Christmas. The town of Nemsis lies on the western coast of Norway. The local hospital grounds are covered in a fresh blanket of snow. The staff decorate a large fir tree outside the main building's red brick facade, lights twinkling like precious stones. A picture-perfect postcard. But that sense of peace is an illusion. Inside room 25, Tor Hepso is dying. He was admitted four days ago for kidney failure. Since then, he has become increasingly restless as his condition worsens. Bed sheets wrap like rope around his limbs as he twists in pain. At 67 years old, Hepso is a big man, powerful and imposing in his day, although he hasn't aged well. Practically bald now, save for stray clumps of hair around his ears. His smoker's fingers are stained saffron yellow. Those who know him say that the funny, charming man they knew has gone, leaving behind a lonely, troubled doppelganger. On his bedside table, three Bibles lie stacked one atop the other, one English, one German, and the other Norwegian. This latter version is littered with highlighted passages from the Book of Proverbs. One such verse reads, a violent person entices their neighbor and leads them down a path that is not good. Sheets of early afternoon sunlight slide through gaps in the blinds as assistant nurse, Ingun Larsen, comes in to check on Hepso. Hepso's pallor is as gray as the rain clouds in the distance. He can barely sit up unaided, but there's no mistaking his words. I killed someone. Sigrid Finstad, and Torun. Larson is disturbed enough to speak to her supervisor, Jim Juliuson, who has Hepso repeat his confession. Juliuson asks if he had been convicted for it. Hepso says that he has not. Juliuson recalls the murder of a young woman by the name of Sigrid. It's years ago, but when he Googles it, the details come flooding back. In his weakened state, Hepso has mixed two names together. Torun Finstad, and Sigrid Hegheim, both 20 years old, students at the Norwegian Institute of Technology, both found strangled decades earlier, both deaths pinned on another man, a man who has spent decades behind bars for the crimes Hepso has just confessed to. Has Tor Hepso's silence allowed another man to be punished for his crimes? If that's true, how did police and prosecutors manage to secure a conviction against a man that Hepso would now have us believe is innocent? But are Hepso's words the genuine confession of a man clearing his conscience before he meets his maker? Or just the ramblings of a dying man, his mind clouded by pain and medication? To unravel that, we need to travel back three decades. Back to 1970s Norway, to a time when Torun Finstad and Sigrid Hegheim's deaths had yet to become hard-hitting headline news. 
to where two troubled men tread paths that will bring their lives hurtling together in a collision that will shake the Norwegian legal system for years to come. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Tur Hepso, of the words he spoke as he lay dying. It's also the story of Fritz Moen and how one man's secrets robbed the other of his freedom. A peaceful town, unused to violent crime, shaken to its core by two brutal murders. The quest for justice for two women who shared the same gruesome fate. It's about those who hold the power in a broken justice system and the damage they cause in people's lives when they wield it. It's about people brave enough to help those who can't speak up for themselves to find a voice. And the most shocking miscarriage of justice in Norwegian legal history. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. The NBA playoffs are here. And we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries there was a lot of excitement there was a lot of skepticism the impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning from the journal trillion dollar shot find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts Tur hepso was born in 1939 on hepsoya a small island off the coast of norway little is known of his early life except that after a conscripted stint in the army he was committed to a hospital in Spain in 1973 due to his deteriorating mental health. But by the late 70s, Hepso has found gainful employment in the oil and gas industry, splitting his time between the Norskald offshore platform and Trondheim, the third largest city in Norway. The Norway of the 1970s is one of contrast, city life versus rural, growing urban areas surrounded by miles of uninhabited wilderness. The booming oil industry has been buoyed by the discovery of Ecofisk Field, one of the largest and most important discovered in the North Sea. It's a peaceful culture. Employment is high, crime rates are low, 
murder rates lower still. Hepso is somewhat of an outlier from this friendly, peaceful society. He doesn't have any close friends, which makes working in such bleak, unforgiving conditions all the more challenging. When he's on shore, much of his time is spent drinking alone in bars. He has struggled with his mental health for a number of years now. He tells his doctor it stems from a boating accident back in 1971. Memories of a collision with a tanker, in which seven people lost their lives. He hints to his doctor, though, that there is also something more, but clams up when probed. It seems as though something is eating away at him, and it shows. The head of Hepso's platform, Ole Jakob Oyen, says that around 1977, something changes in Hepso. He becomes even more introverted, closed off even, and at times his speech is borderline incoherent. Whatever is bothering him, it makes events that unfold in October 1977 take on a chilling new significance when overlaid against his spiraling mental well-being. It's October 1st, 1977, a typical weekend at the Student Society Bar in Trondheim. The largest society in Norway, its music stage has seen acts such as the Sex Pistols and Iggy Pop belt out their backlist to capacity crowds. Tonight, over 2,000 people have come out to party. Alcohol flows. A sea of bodies sway on the dance floor. Amongst them is 20-year-old first-year student Torun Finstad, out for the night with friends. She's new to the city, having moved here from Konsberg. They drink and dance well into the early hours of Sunday morning, before Torun says goodnight to her friends and begins the walk home. She will never be seen alive again. It's two days later when those close to her start to worry, finally reporting her missing on October 4th. 48 hours later, on October 6th, police find her body southwest of the Stavne Bridge that crosses the Nidelva River. She has been raped and strangled. The cord from her own jacket left looped around her neck. Such a shocking crime calls for a swift response from the authorities, and it's a mere 24 hours before they make an arrest. It's someone they've had on their radar before. Fritz Moen was born in 1941, in the town of Sarpsborg, some 600 kilometers south of Trondheim. He is an illegitimate product of World War II, the child of a Norwegian mother and an invading German soldier. He was almost completely deaf from birth and had a severe speech impediment. He was of normal intelligence but had poor reading and writing skills. In addition, his right arm was damaged, paralyzed after a moped accident. All in all, he'd been dealt a less than favorable hand in life right from the start. Frustration and poor schooling led to behavior problems and difficulties fitting in. He has several convictions for exposing himself to women, so feels like a natural person of interest for police after Torun Finstad's murder. Someone who has perhaps escalated from a more passive crime to one far more aggressive. The police already suspect that he has exposed himself to women in the area where Torun Finstad's body had been found. Investigators arrest Moen on October 7th and begin their interrogation in earnest. Moen begins by sharing an alibi. He tells police he was at a friend's birthday party the night Finstad disappeared. Detectives question witnesses from that party, all of whom corroborate that once Moen arrived, 
He did not leave until it was over in the early hours of Sunday, October 2nd. Despite what looks like a solid alibi, investigators aren't convinced, and Moen is subjected to further interrogation over a number of weeks. His deafness makes it difficult for him to understand the questions that fly at him from all sides. An interpreter is provided for him, but witnesses to these sessions will later comment on the pressure Moen faced to confess. And there are doubts as to how effective the interpreter is in conveying Moen's words. On October 9th, less than a week after Finstad's body is discovered, he admits to having killed a woman on the Stavne Bridge. It's not enough for investigators, who keep applying pressure for more detail. In a subsequent statement given a week later, Moen claims to have attacked a woman and then carried her over the grassy plain between the bridge and the river, then down to the riverbank. However, he is also quoted in a separate interview as saying, I am innocent of everything. Why do I have to tell the truth? It's not possible. I have told the truth about how I killed the women. I am innocent of everything. Much later, it's revealed that Moen's definition of telling the truth was to confirm what the investigators wanted him to say, regardless of what he had or hadn't done. There is no physical or forensic evidence linking him to the murder, but thanks in large part to his so-called confession, Moen is indicted on April 11th, 1978, and convicted shortly after on 29th of May. He is sentenced to the maximum penalty under Norwegian law, 21 years in prison, with up to an additional 10 years of post-release supervision. Fritz Moen's life as a free man is over. He is facing the next two decades behind bars. But he's not the only one whose life is imploding. While Fritz Moen begins his sentence, Tur Hepso is experiencing a similar, if slower, decline. In 1979, he suffers another breakdown while working on an offshore oil platform and is once again admitted to a psychiatric unit. It's 26 years before he will drop his deathbed bombshell, but it's the continuation of a slippery slope for him. One that will see him accused of violent offenses that bear echoes of what he will confess to decades from now. Evidence of a violent streak that has so far gone unpunished. As Hepso's life continues to unravel, Fritz Moen is finding out that life in prison is even harder for a man with disabilities. These, combined with the lack of an interpreter inside, means his interaction with other inmates is limited. He spends much of his time as a solitary figure, all avenues of appeal seemingly exhausted, every day as a carbon copy of the last, until three years into his sentence. In September 1981, when policemen unexpectedly arrive to speak to him about an entirely different case to the one he is serving time for. The cold case steps back five years in time to September 1976 and bears a striking resemblance to the murder of Todun Finstad. Another young woman, Sigrid Hegheim, also 20 at the time she was killed, had been found strangled in a field behind a petrol station at Niedervall, on the outskirts of Trondheim. Like Todun Finstad, Sigrid had moved to the town to enroll at university. She had a world of possibilities ahead of her, only to have it all snatched away in brutal fashion. In an uncanny parallel linking her to Torun Finstad, Sigrid was last seen leaving a party at the Student Society. She said goodnight to her friends a little after 2 a.m. 
and was not seen alive again by anyone other than her attacker. Similarities in the location and manner of death between this and the Finstad case make Moen a prime suspect. Moen finds himself back in the all-too-familiar claustrophobic confines of an interrogation room. Devastating deja vu for a man who has protested his innocence for three years now. He's subjected to round after round of questioning, urging him to clear his conscience, to give Sigrid Hegheim's family a measure of the justice they crave. Finally, in the seventh session of interrogation, and crucially the only one in which Moen does not have the benefit of an interpreter, the police claim he confesses. Moen later recants this, claiming he was coerced, confused, and without anyone in the room to help him understand the questions that battered him from all sides. Nonetheless, his alleged confession is enough to charge him, and in December 1981, he finds himself on trial for murder once again. Moen goes into the new trial with reason to be optimistic. Despite the police having a confession, however dubious, Moen's defense counsel comes to court armed with two very important pieces of information. Unlike the first trial, there is significant forensic evidence. Back in 1976, blood was found at the scene that didn't belong to Sigrid Hegheim, type A blood that could have only come from her killer. Semen collected at the scene was also confirmed to have come from someone bearing the same type A blood. Over half of all Norwegians are type A, but crucially, Fritz Moen is not one of them. Surely this will be enough to convince a jury he is innocent of this killing. The prosecution counters by arguing that the presence of E. coli bacteria could have polluted the sample, rendering any results meaningless. Still, as with the first case, Moen has an alibi, covering him for the time the police believe Sigrid was murdered, when they first investigated back in 1976. She had last been seen alive shortly after 2 a.m. Witnesses placed Moen at a friend's house, over 40 miles away from Trondheim, for the entire evening Sigrid was at the party. They confirmed that he didn't leave until the following afternoon, more than 12 hours after the last known sighting of Sigrid Hegheim. How can he have committed the murder if he was in a different town? The prosecution manages to spin even this. They argue that Sigrid could have gone straight home and spent the day in and around Trondheim without being seen by anyone she knew. Moen could then have killed her after he returned from his party. This last leap of faith they ask the jury to take literally rewrites the story of how the original investigation saw events playing out pushing out her time of death just enough that Moen's alibi no longer applies. It feels like a stretch, with no evidence to back it up. But incredibly, the members of the jury seem to accept it. On the strength of these arguments, coupled with the confession, they vote to convict Moen for a second time. He is sentenced to five more years, to be served concurrently with the 16 years remaining for Torun Finstad's murder. He's sent back to his cell, protesting his innocence of not one, but two murders. Immediately following Moen's conviction, his defense lawyer, Olav Hestens, announces, For the first time at this desk, I allow myself to say that a travesty of justice has been committed. The judge, Carl Solberg, reacts furiously, threatening contempt of court, and later applauds the court's verdict. If there's any hope to be found, 
It's not with him. Fritz Moen's appeal is swiftly denied by the appeals committee in January 1982. What little hint of light Fritz Moen thought he saw at the end of his own dark tunnel appears to have been snuffed out. But Moen's time in a courtroom is far from over. There are more revelations, bombshells even, to come. It'll just take time. Something he has plenty of on his hands. While Fritz Moen languishes in a prison cell, Tur Hepso continues to walk around a free man. But freedom does not guarantee happiness. Despite being somewhat of a loner, by 1983, he has found himself a girlfriend. They move in together, just an average couple living an average life to any outsiders looking in. Behind closed doors, though, their relationship is anything but tranquil. Hepso's demons have followed him back on shore. After three years together in 1986, his girlfriend speaks out, making some startling revelations to police. She tells them she has been subject to several violent attacks. On more than one occasion, He's even put his hands around her neck, choking her to the point of unconsciousness. These occasions usually went a step further, with him forcing her to have sex with him while he did it. She claims there are also threats to kill her. Perhaps most disturbing of all was a remark he made, saying that as he attacked her, he saw the eyes of a girl he had left. Charges are filed against Hepso, but ultimately get dropped due to lack of evidence. A classic case of he said, she said. But the story doesn't end there. One year later, Hepso finds himself confined to a psychiatric hospital for a third time. During this stay, he confides in a member of staff that there is truth in what his now ex-girlfriend has alleged. He tells them the relationship has ended because of his violence towards her. Had the way he treated her been his mask slipping, showing the kind of man he was capable of being? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. The NBA playoffs are here, and we all know playoff mode is a thing. Listen to the evidence. Playoff crowds are going wild. Playoff players are lighting up the court. Even the speakers are in playoff mode. Okay, we'll take it down a notch, but just a notch, because this is the Turn It Up to 11 NBA Playoffs. Playoff mode is clearly a thing. The NBA Playoffs presented by Google Pixel continue on ABC, ESPN, TNT, and NBA TV. Following his discharge from the hospital, Hepso will disappear from the public eye, not surfacing again for decades. Meanwhile, Fritz Moen is left to serve out the remainder of his sentence. He's released in March 1996, after 18 years behind bars. He emerges back into a world very different from the one he left behind. The Berlin Wall has fallen. The First Gulf War has come and gone. The internet connects the planet in a way people of Moen's generation could never have dreamed. Even though he is allowed to walk out of prison, his past still casts a long shadow. 
In October 1999, a year and a half after his release, a district judge grants a request for a further five years' supervision, believing he continues to pose a threat. Moen wonders if he will ever truly put this behind him. A major change has occurred in his fortunes, though, one that could give him his best shot yet at clearing his name. A psychiatrist who has previously treated Moen comes to believe his patient's claims of innocence. They take a chance reaching out to journalist and private investigator Tora Sandberg. As a journalist, Sandberg covered the discovery of the bodies of Torun Finstad and Sigrid Hegheim, as well as Moen's trial in 1978, so was familiar with Moen's case. Sandberg was also heavily involved in the exoneration of Per Lilland in 1994, uncovering crucial new evidence that helped get the conviction for a brutal double murder quashed. However, Sandberg doesn't have a legal background. He knows he can't fight Moen's battle alone, so enlists the help of John Christian Eldon, an attorney from Oslo he recently worked with on the exoneration of a man wrongly convicted of rape. Eldon meets with Moen, speaking through an interpreter, and agrees to represent him pro bono, believing his convictions are unsound. Eldon moves fast, filing a petition with the Court of Appeal in January 2000 to reopen both cases. Included in the list of reasons he cites are failure to disclose crucial evidence by the prosecution and irregularities with Moen's so-called confessions. As expected, the state prosecutors strongly object, and after two years of legal deadlock, it seems that any hopes Fritz Moen might have of victory have been premature. The court rejects the petition, and Moen is dealt with the latest in a long line of blows courtesy of the state. He is tired, downhearted, and at the point of giving up. Eldon, however, is just getting started. He takes the fight to the Supreme Court Appeals Committee, who put the evidence in the original case under the microscope. They hone in on two key areas. The first of these is the blood found on Sigrid Hegheim's body. The original samples are gone now, likely destroyed. Unlike the original trial, though, where the prosecution argued the samples were tainted, Sandberg and Eldon find an expert who proves that E. coli could not have affected the blood typing. This is huge, as it means the committee now accepts that the blood did not belong to Moen. And since they have already decided that only the perpetrator could have left the blood at the scene, this leaves only one outcome. In October 2003, 26 years after his initial arrest, Moen's petition to reopen the Sigrid Hegheim case is granted. The victory is short-lived, however, Ruling on the same petition for the Torun Finstad case, the committee, citing Moen's confessions and how well he had been able to describe the crime scene, refuses to reopen the case. It feels like one step forward, two steps back for Moen, but it's still the most progress he has made in decades. Finally, a year later, on October 7th, 2004, 27 years to the day since he was arrested for the first murder, Fritz Moen appears before the Court of Appeal to hear their decision on the Sigrid Hegheim case. He's nervous, conditioned by a lifetime of disappointment to expect the worst. He is an old man now, his once thick head of hair having given way to baldness and beard. He sits in the courtroom, fixated on the interpreter, who relays the court's decision. His conviction for the murder of Sigrid Hegheim is quashed, and emotion gets the better of him. 
almost three decades of being called a murderer and a liar, Moen does what many of us would do under the circumstances. He cries, tears of relief and joy, but he knows that this battle is only half won. The conviction for Torun Finstad's murder still stands. Could this finally be a sign that his luck is changing? That he can perhaps clear his name completely and live out what remains of his life with a clean slate he has craved all these years? Eldon is as fired up as ever to press on. Less than one week after the acquittal, he petitions on Moen's behalf to the newly formed Norwegian Criminal Case Review Commission, or CCRC. The CCRC have the power to reopen a case where they believe an acquittal is likely. And in November 2004, they formally appoint Eldon to represent Moen in the Torun Finstad case for what he hopes will be his final battle. Whatever the outcome of the CCRC hearing, Fritz Moen will not be around to hear it. On the 28th of March, 2005, he dies from a heart failure. He was 63 and had spent over a quarter of his life behind bars. This might be the end of the story, had Moen not already spoken with his half-brother about what should happen in these circumstances. Some things transcend death, and Moen was adamant that the quest to clear his name should be one of these. So, even with Fritz Moen gone, Eldon and Sandberg vowed to fight on and finish what they started, no matter how long it takes. They feel they have a strong case, but this story, like all the best ones, has saved the biggest plot twist for last. This brings us full circle to Sunday, the 18th of December, 2005 nine months after the death of Fritz Moen. Back to room 25 at Namso's hospital. Detour Hepso dying of kidney failure, whispering to his nurse the words, I killed someone. The nurse's supervisor, Jim Juliuson, does not expect to get much conversation from a man who has barely eaten since he was admitted. But Hepso surprises him, repeating his claim. Juliuson makes two calls, the first is to the hospital chaplain, Inga Torset. The church office is close by, and Torset is there within minutes. He sits on the edge of Hepso's bed, listening in horror as the dying man talks about two women he claims to have killed. In Hepso's words, he killed a girl in Trondheim in the 70s, and adds, I think I have taken the life of another. Another man has served the sentence, Hepso continues. And he finishes by saying, I have never told anyone about this before. Hepso asks Torset to forego the duty of confidentiality that comes with confessing to a priest. He wants the authorities to be told, knowing that he himself will not be around to face any consequences. Juliuson beats Torset to it, his second call being to the police. Christmas Eve is a busy time at the station, and police officers Tom Rune, Brondbo, and Stig Rune Sagan are busy with another case when the call comes through. They're only told that a dying man wants to speak with the police, so don't make it to the hospital until early evening. Hepso is exhausted. What remains of his strength is fading fast. He tells the officers of a night out in September 1976 on one of his stints on shore an evening of memories blurred by booze. 
how he met a young girl called Sacred, 20 years old, beautiful, and blonde. How he had been drunk and remembers little of what happened, except that he killed her. The second girl had been a year or two later, he tells them. Torun is the name he remembers, a girl that reminded him of Sigrid. He met her on a railway bridge, and just like the previous year, fueled by drink, he attacked her, strangled her, and left her body where it lay. The officers were only young boys in the 1970s, and the victims' names don't immediately register. The next name Hepso speaks, however, is one they do recognize. It's a name that strikes a sour note and confirms that Hepso has known all these years that another man paid for his crimes. The name he gives them is Fritz Moen. Hepso's revelation is huge if true, but he, like Moen, does not live to see the story play out. Two days later, before Trondheim police can send someone to interrogate him further, Tur Hepso slips away, both from life and potentially from justice for his crimes. The CCRC decides that as they are still reviewing Moen's case, they'll examine Hepso's dying claims to see if there's any truth in them. Slowly a picture emerges, one of a troubled man who struggled for most of his life with his mental health, one who had shown a tendency for violence towards women, although was never charged with a crime hospitalized due to his mental health both before and after the murders occurred. Thanks to his cousin, Ave Hepso, and the diaries he kept from the time, the CCRC are able to confirm that Hepso had been in Trondheim around the time of the murders. But there's not much more information than that. Hepso spent his last few months prior to his hospital bed confession at his parents' old house on Hepsoya Island. A neighbor who arrived shortly after Hepso's departure found the remains of a fire. Ashes and half-burned piles of paper lie scattered across his own property like confetti. The neighbor, after cleaning up the mess, poured on some white spirit, lit a match, and the last remnants of Tur Hepso's papers went up in smoke. What was it that Tur Hepso had made one last journey home to destroy? Could it have been evidence tying him to the two murders? that he needed disposed of at a time before the eminency of death made him confess? The picture starting to form before the CCRC is becoming more compelling by the day. One of a man with a short fuse, known to be in the vicinity, with a history of mental illness and violence towards women. The CCRC turned their attention away from Hepso to Moen's confessions in the Finstad case. One thing that stands out is that the only information Moen shared in his original confession was either in the public domain and could have been read from press coverage, or could have been learned when police took him to view the crime scene. Crucially, his confessions did not include key facts such as the cord from Torun Finstad's raincoat, wrapped around her neck, or the bag she carried with her. The CCRC finishes by citing the clear similarities between the two cases, the location, sexual abuse, and injuries. They find it unlikely that the two were carried out by different perpetrators. And since Fritz Moen had already been acquitted of killing Sigrid Hegheim, it comes as no surprise that on June 16, 2006, they agree to reopen the case. Two months later, the Court of Appeal posthumously acquit Fritz Moen of the murder of Torun Finstad, 
drawing to a close one of the most startling and drawn-out miscarriages of justice in Norwegian legal history. The story doesn't end here, though. The commission also singled out the Trondheim police for their failure to present a complete and unbiased report of the case to the prosecutors, the defense, and the court. One example that surfaces is that the police did not disclose that Hegheim's diary was found. She wrote in this every day without fail, and entries confirm the final day she was seen. This means Moen couldn't have committed the crime because the police confirmed his alibi until the afternoon after she disappeared. In light of the acquittals, some tough questions are posed of those involved in the convictions. Confirmation bias at its worst, something many of us are guilty of at times without even realizing it. And for Fritz Moen, it robbed him of the chance to live his life as a free man. A quirk of the case that many don't realize to this day is that despite Moen's acquittal and Hepso's confession, the murders of Torun Finstad and Sigrid Heckheim are officially listed as unresolved. No charges have ever been brought against Hepso. His surviving family have no idea whether he was what he claimed at the end to be. Police have stated they have no interest in pursuing a case against a dead man. The families of the victims will never receive an unshakable answer as to who killed their loved ones. There are still some people around the original case who believe they had the right man the first time around. One man's miscarriage is another man's righteous conviction. Shell Rytan, now 81, is one of the few from back then who is willing to be interviewed. He was a technical investigator at both murders and says he is in no doubt as to Moen's guilt, but that he will respect the court's decision. Blood samples were taken from Hepso before he died, but the biological evidence from the 70s, along with physical evidence such as Sigrid's jacket, has long since disappeared, so there can be no sting in the tale where that is concerned. What is victory for some feels hollow still for others. In the years that follow, Torres Sandberg is honored for his role in overturning the verdicts, with two major human rights awards for his part in the exoneration. Moen was posthumously awarded $4 million in damages. He had already nominated who should receive any compensation in the event of his death. The money was split between the Conrad Svensson Center that operates homes and cares for deaf and blind adults and the Signo Foundation, which sponsors programs that aid the deaf. The fallout from the case also sparked an examination of the justice system at large. The role of the three Supreme Court justices was reviewed to see if grounds existed for impeachment. The case was ultimately closed with no indictments, although the judges were publicly criticized during a parliamentary debate. The media's place in the Moen case was also called into question as being part of the problem. Back when the original trials occurred, large numbers of press covered both cases, but they mostly just referenced the court's conclusions without directly engaging in any form of critical journalism based on Moen's disabilities and lack of physical or biological evidence. There is a quote from Sandberg, who himself was a journalist covering the trials. He said, I think most of the journalists who covered the cases realized that something was wrong, but we were so servile to the judicial system. Where is the critical journalism against the police and judiciary? The cases against Moen and Hepso's are now consigned to history, 
a cautionary tale for modern-day Norway and beyond. One man didn't live to see his name cleared, while the other died before he could face any consequences. A series of events played out across decades, and with echoes of a Greek tragedy from a bygone era, our two flawed protagonists are painted into corners from which they'll never emerge. It has been suggested that a statue be erected of Fritz Moen, outside the Ministry of Justice building in Oslo, as a reminder to seek the truth. That is yet to happen, but Moen's name lives on as a warning we would do well to heed. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Vernon Sates, a barber from Milwaukee with a dark secret from his childhood. He confesses to a psychiatrist days before his death that he killed a boy while still a child himself. By the time police go to his house to question him, he has already passed away. But what they find in his basement makes them fear that his confession is just the tip of a far more sinister iceberg. But is there an alternative explanation for what they find? Or have they inadvertently stumbled on a man who has preyed on others for decades? Find out next week. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Rob Scragg. Supervising editor Alex Benedin. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound supervisor Tom Pink. Sound designed by Matias Torresole. Edited by Rob Plummer. Mix master by Kean Ryan Morgan. 